time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, defense counsel with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks very much for uh, having me. Joining us once again in the hinterland. Where are we today? Uh, today we're in uh, Smithers. Uh, we're uh, enjoying a uh, trip around uh, B.C., including uh, northern B.C., uh, which I should say is simply spectacular. Uh, if uh, any listeners are looking for a uh, place to go in the uh, times of COVID, that would be uh, that would be conducive to socially isolating, uh, and are interested in seeing some uh, beautiful places, uh, you should uh, consider Northern BC. They're just uh, wonderful places to visit up here, uh, and uh, much of the uh, area is uh, seems to be very lightly used. There are uh, campgrounds and so on that are uh, completely uh, empty. Uh, so uh, keep that in mind if you're looking for something to do at the uh, end of your uh, summer. Absolutely. Just make sure you don't have Alberta license plates, right? Yeah, you might be run out of here with an Alberta plate. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. Uh, let's let's dive into the topic. See. Now, uh, as an ordinary person, I've heard terms like dangerous offender, long-term offender. They might seem interchangeable, but they're not. What do those terms mean in law? Yes, that's a, an excellent question, and it bears on a uh, case that just came out of the, uh, speaking of the uh, north of the province, uh, and what's beyond that, a decision of the uh, Court of Appeal of the Yukon. Um, interestingly, the uh, Court of Appeal of the Yukon is actually the same as the Court of Appeal in British Columbia. Uh, rather than appointing a, a whole other court uh, for a relatively small population in the Yukon, uh, judges who are judges in the uh, Court of Appeal in British Columbia here also serve as the Court of Appeal for the Yukon, hmm. uh, which gives those cases uh, some uh, additional interest to those of us from B.C. So the case from the Yukon dealt with exactly the issue you, you raised there, <clears throat> sort of what is a dangerous offender, what is a long-term offender, and how, uh, how should those be distinguished. The underlying fact pattern is uh, just a terrible one. It was a man who was convicted of sexually assaulting 13 young girls over an extended period of time. Uh, just a horrific uh, uh, fact pattern uh, there, a uh, trail of uh, um, uh, harm that this man caused. Uh, and uh, given that, it caused the Crown to make the first of those things you mentioned, which was an application to have him designated as a dangerous offender. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, dangerous offender is a, a concept in the uh, criminal code that uh, deals with uh, somebody who's convicted of what's called a serious personal injury offense mm-hmm. um, and uh, where the Crown could show that the person has essentially, it's a sort of a pattern of uh, conduct of that sort, uh, and a judge would have to be satisfied that the person is going to be um, unable to control their either sexual impulses uh, or uh, behavior such that they are likely in the future to commit um, further offenses that would cause injury, pain, or evil to other persons. It actually uses the term evil in the definition. Interesting. Um, and most, I think it's the figure is somewhere in the order of about 90% of people who are designated as dangerous offenders are designated in that way uh, because of a pattern of sexual offending um, on the basis that they're unable to control their sexual impulses and that they're going to cause that sort of uh, injury or harm or evil in the future. Um, and if the Crown is successful in having somebody designated as a dangerous offender, it would permit a judge to sentence that person to an indefinite period of time in prison. Uh, it would be the equivalent of a life sentence. You would have no right to ever be released. Uh, you can apply after, I think, it's seven years for parole, but you have absolutely no right to that. So 
people so designated are likely to spend much of the rest of their life in prison. Now, in the case of the man that I just mentioned who committed this series of uh, horrific um, sexual uh, offenses, the Crown made that application, but ultimately the, the trial judge, and this was a decision of the Court of Appeal, remember, was not satisfied that the man met the definition of a dangerous offender, but was satisfied that he met that category, the other one that you mentioned, of being a long-term offender. Now, the difference is this. If a judge finds somebody to be a long-term offender, the judge would impose a a defined length of sentence for the crimes for which the person is being sentenced. In this case, the judge sentenced the man to 16 years in the penitentiary. Um, But a definition of being a long-term offender then would allow the judge to impose an additional uh, period of supervision of up to 10 years following the person's release. So that's what the judge did here, 16 years in prison, uh, followed by it would be sort of 10 years of uh, intensive supervision once released, so up to 26 years. Uh, and the man in this case was uh, now, I think, 50 years of age. Um, and that result... Uh, caused both the Crown and the defense, interestingly, to both appeal the sentence. The Crown arguing that it should have been a dangerous offender finding, uh, and counsel for the man arguing that it should have been something less than a 16-year sentence. Uh, The Court of Appeal dismissed both of those things, finding that the judge's decision um, should not be interfered with, uh, and in doing that made another interesting point that listeners may not be aware of, is that some appeals like this one, where the Crown is appealing, they can only appeal on the if they can demonstrate that the judge made an error of law, not that they disagree with a factual finding or judgment call made by the judge. Yes. And here, the Court of Appeal found that the, the judge had not made any error of law. He'd correctly applied the law. The Crown just took issue with uh, the fact that he relied on a psychiatric assessment saying that the man would be uh, likely uh, subject to uh, treatment and would be a low risk uh, if he uh, there was the sort of supervision order that was imposed. But the court said that's not a legal error. You just disagree with a, a factual finding or a evidence. Uh, and on that basis, the Crown is not entitled to appeal at all. And that's the thing that's important to remember. The uh, Court of Appeal uh, isn't just a do-over. You don't get to just say, I don't like what happened there. I want to try again with someone else. Indeed. Uh, And you have to show that there was, at least in the case of a Crown appeal, that the judge made a legal mistake. Uh, And here that didn't happen. So the the net result is that uh, the man will have this definite sentence, 16 years, and then would be, upon release, um, would be supervised for an additional uh, 10 years. So he'd be a very old man uh, indeed, by the time uh, all of that uh, supervision and monitoring and sentence is complete. The next story deals with a phenomenon that you and I have discussed in the past called self-help, where individuals <laughs> do not properly engage the justice system to resolve their disputes, but instead engage in actions which can result in legal action being brought against them and paying substantial damages. What happened? Yeah, it, it sure did. Uh, this, I uh, must say, sounded like just a, an awful uh, circumstance that arose from a protracted dispute uh, between two neighbors that went on for years. Uh, the other, it eventually resulted in these two neighbors uh, suing each other in small claims court, the trial of which went on for some 13 days. Uh, and they were accusing each other of uh, all matter of uh, conduct, 
uh, including things like uh, one was claiming the other put uh, uh, a bunch of uh, dog feces on their lawn. One claimed that the other put garbage in their yard. Uh, there was an unfounded complaint of putting a dead snake on a trampoline. Uh, so just the worst sort of neighbor uh, dispute you could uh, imagine. Rude gestures. And then this animosity uh, finally got focused on a concrete retaining wall uh, that on the evidence uh, protruded in some part onto one of the neighbor's yards by about seven inches. They lived in these large properties up in Campbell River. Yes. And a part of the retaining wall just was slightly over the line. Now, even though the retaining wall didn't do any harm to the uh, person who had the retaining wall on his property, and in fact, his evidence was it was helpful to him because it avoided, I think, erosion in his yard, um, he decided as a result of this um, animosity to start by spray painting it, uh, remove all over over it, uh, and then eventually, just before Christmas, putting on an orange jumpsuit and going out with a jackhammer and in a self-help fashion, jackhammering away oh, no. the wall uh, while making rude gestures and so on at the family on the other side, um, and eventually causing a fence on top of it to fall down. And so it was this just the awful neighbors <laughs> that, eventually, laugh, but... that eventually got into this 13-day small claims trial. Um, and so after 13 days, this poor provincial court judge had to try to sort out what's to be made of all this. Uh, but there are, out of that awful neighbor circumstance, there are some, I think, important points for people to be aware of. Um, one of them is that even if something like a retaining wall is slightly on your yard, that doesn't entitle you to just go out in a self-help fashion with a jackhammer and take it out. Um, the There are some limited circumstances where somebody could do something. If a trespass onto your yard like that was uh, dangerous, right, or there's some emergency posed by it, you'd be able to take some action. But short of that, the remedy would be go to court and have the thing sorted out. Yes. And in fact, if you go to the Supreme Court, as the judge, this provincial court judge in small claims pointed out, there are provisions in Supreme Court that would allow a Supreme Court judge to do things like bury the property line slightly and then provide financial compensation to the other party right, as a solution to this sort of problem, mm-hmm. um, rather than having sort of antisocial behavior and sort of unnecessary uh, actions like this carried out. So there are legal solutions to these sort of uh, minor property line disputes, none of which were <laughs> engaged by this uh, group of people. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, the judge in this case, who could only order financial damages, ordered uh, $1 in compensation to the man who had the helpful retaining wall slightly on his property by seven inches in some part, uh, but ordered ultimately about I think it was the total was something in the order of $16,000 in damages against him, the man who jackhammered away the uh, retaining wall, leaving sort of exposed rebar and so on in this completely unsatisfactory way uh, to allow the wall to be uh, replaced. And he also ordered punitive damages against the man for having engaged in this sort of uh, high-handed uh, uh, conduct and jackhammering it uh, away. And so the uh, takeaway for people, I guess, is really twofold. One would be, for heaven's sakes, trying to get along with your neighbors better than this. <laughs> uh, this thing <laughs> went beyond the dog feces and the dead snake allegation. They were doing things like calling bylaw enforcement on each other, calling the police on each other continuously. Um, it sounded like just a terrible circumstance. But at the end of the day, don't go out and try to deal with the thing yourself by you know, the self-help remedy of trying to remove something like that. 
um, you're likely to wind up having a damages award against you and potentially a substantial one. If you have this sort of a property line uh, dispute, the uh, remedy for that would be go to the Supreme Court uh, and there are mechanisms to remedy it. We can fix these problems. Uh, Don't do it with an orange jumpsuit before Christmas with a jacket. Indeed. It's unlikely that those are the first two neighbors to ever engage in such a dispute. Ergo, the justice system will have tools already developed that can satisfy both parties in a much, let's say, less embarrassing manner because now they're being talked about on the radio. Indeed. (laughs) All right. Let's take a break. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers will continue legally speaking on CFAX 1070 right after this. And we continue with Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue the segment. Anything else that we want to touch upon in that uh, dispute involving a small sliver of land? I see it deals with the civil definitions of assault and battery and what the defenses are and how while a person must uh, use reasonable force or proportionate, they, they need not measure it to a nicety and all that stuff. It was, uh, I must say, just reading that over just uh, gave me a headache. You can only imagine what those 13 days of uh, court proceedings would have uh, looked like. Uh, And uh, for all of us that uh, may have uh, clients or just personally waiting to have things dealt with in court, uh, it's just uh, what a shame that uh, we've, that case uh, consumed uh, 13 days of uh, court time. But I I suppose on the other hand, we're, we're lucky to live in a place where there is that kind of remedy. Uh, and people don't have to settle things by, you know, throwing grass clippings, dead snakes, or, the, you know, dog feces at one another to try to sort out their uh, dispute over, uh, you know, fences and uh, retaining walls. So I suppose there's something in that, but uh, boy, those are 13 days that I'm sure a whole bunch of people are never going to get back. Now, for the benefit of our audience, 13 days for a trial sounds like it's an extraordinarily large amount of time. How many days would we see in an ordinary trial involving, say, an assault or other similar matter? Well, probably uh, an average assault case might take half a day, something of that. Oh, wow. So this okay. would be something like 26 times beyond that. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. You, you can only just imagine these, these people were uh, there was videotaping uh, of one another and uh, uh, books of evidence and, uh, you know, people taking days off of work to come in and settle this. Uh, uh, it just sounded like a, a completely uh, awful, uh, awful circumstance all around. So hopefully the, uh, they'll uh, take the decision to heart and... Uh, <laughs> stop the uh, the juvenile behavior. Our next story I find very interesting because it deals with what I hope are extraordinarily rare situations where a lawyer's conduct may make him or her personally liable to pay costs in an unsuccessful legal action that they bring on behalf of a client. Talk about this. Yes, now this case is in the, I think the uh, second category of things that are most likely to produce terrible litigation. There are probably three. <laughs> I mean, defense dispute amongst neighbors, family litigation, and in this case, estate litigation. Uh. Nothing, uh, nothing seems to get people's uh, uh, back up more than uh, fighting over uh, money in an estate. Uh, and so this was a uh, case that uh, been going on for years, um, uh, dispute over an estate, um, which eventually uh, they came, the group of people that were fighting over it, family members, came to some agreement about it back in 2013. So you would think, well, that's wonderful. They've come to some agreement about it. Uh, but then they started to, it sounds like, fight about the agreement. So <laughs> I guess there never really is any finality to anything. Um, and uh, the uh, fighting over the agreement went on and on uh, and involved a, a concept that people may have heard of called an undertaking. And uh-huh. An undertaking is a lawyer's promise to do something. Okay. Uh, and. It's more than a promise that uh, it's a promise which would have professional 
uh, implications if you fail to carry it out. If you're a lawyer and you make an undertaking, you must do what you've undertaken to do. That's the basics of it. Um, And it forms the foundation for all sorts of things, legal transactions, selling houses, uh, all kinds of things depend on lawyers following their undertaking. Okay. In this uh, this context, uh, there was a poorly conceived undertaking entered into by one of the lawyers involved in this terrible piece of uh, litigation over in a state that restricted the lawyer's ability to make use of um, this agreement, like what they could do with it. Uh Once everyone signed this thing back in 2013, and it eventually, as they spent years fighting over the agreement, um, the uh, lawyer had attached a copy of the agreement to, I think, some affidavits that were filed, and somebody took issue with whether the thing should have been attached to the affidavits. That's the level of ridiculousness that was being thought about here. Huh. Uh, and it eventually uh, resulted in an exasperated uh, judge uh, ordering, saying, that, look, this application never should have been brought. You shouldn't be here fighting about this. Uh, and this thing had gone on so long, the lawyer who had entered into this undertaking and who had filed these affidavits, their client had also passed away. <laughs> so they spent so long fighting about it, the client was no longer alive. And it produced the judge ordering the lawyer to pay costs for this, uh, what the judge thought was sort of an ill-conceived application that never should have been brought. Uh-huh. Uh, that then produced uh, further litigation over that issue, which was just sorted out by the Court of Appeal. The lawyer was arguing, hey, you shouldn't make me personally pay these costs. So that led to the Court of Appeal talking about that issue, sort of, you know, when and in what circumstances can a court order the actual lawyer to pay (laughs) costs for something rather than the lawyer's client, which should be the ordinary course of affairs, right? Mm -hmm. Costs in the context of civil litigation would ordinarily be that If you bring an application or sue somebody and you're unsuccessful, the losing party would ordinarily uh, have to pay some of the legal costs of the successful party. Mm -hmm. And that's to encourage people to sort out their differences and not spend 13 days in court arguing about it. Yes. Um, But uh, there are some rare circumstances where courts actually have authority to order the lawyer to pay the costs. But uh, here, the Court of Appeal found those didn't exist. Right. Uh, there was a, the judge was, I think, concerned that the lawyer's client had passed away, I think, wanting to see the costs paid. But the Court of Appeal made the point that while there is authority to order a lawyer to pay costs for an unsuccessful application, that should be used in exceedingly rare circumstances and would ordinarily require there to be some, you know, real misconduct on the part of the lawyer, not just, well, this, this thing didn't succeed. Right. Yes. Um, and the other point the Court of Appeal made here is that where that kind of an order is going to be made, there should be at least an opportunity for the lawyer to say something about it before the order is made. Like, hey, I plan to do this. Why shouldn't I? Or what do you have to say about that um, as a matter of procedural fairness? Right. And that's something that would sort of permeate the justice system. We need to be procedurally fair with people. Right. Mm-hmm. You're going yes. to you know, punish somebody or do something to them. You should, at one of the elements of fairness, would be tell the person you're thinking about doing that and give them an opportunity to say something about it. Hey, I plan to do this. Anything you want to add, right? All right. And and here, the judge didn't do that. The judge, first of all, the lawyer hadn't engaged in some sort of uh, terrible, reprehensible conduct. Uh, They had brought an application the judge didn't think had merit. But moreover, when the uh, chamber's judge made this award against the lawyer before doing that, 
the judge didn't give the lawyer any opportunity to say anything about it, right? There were sort of general submissions about costs, and then the judge just said, here's what I'm doing. And so for both of those reasons, uh, the Court of Appeal, well, confirming that there can be an award of costs against the lawyer rather than the lawyer's client, found that here uh, that should not have happened, uh, and um, the uh, ultimately uh, that was reversed. So I guess the takeaway for people would be, uh, <laughs> in addition to the try to get along with your neighbors to avoid uh, you know, 13-day trials over uh, retaining walls and dead snake allegations, uh, also do your very best if you think you might be the beneficiary of an estate uh, don't spend seven years litigating the thing, or else you may find that you've passed away before you become the actual recipient of money. So, um, as I say, those are probably the uh, three categories of things that produce the greatest hackles of people, family litigation, fence disputes, and uh, fighting over an estate. So, Michael Mulligan and I learned a new word today, dilatory, in terms of delaying. <laughs> <laughs> I had to Google it. I knew what vexatious was. I knew I found it in frivolous, but I didn't know dilatory. So now I know it. We we, we do our best in the legal profession to keep ourselves uh, well employed by using terminology that needs to be Googled. Absolutely. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight in these matters, especially when you are far away on vacation. We do greatly appreciate you taking some time out of your day as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. I always enjoy it. Have a great day. All right. Have a great day. Bye now.